morning, friends. Welcome. I'm so glad that you're here this morning. For the last number of weeks, we have been gawking, gawking, walking. I say going and walking, and it came out gawking. Sounds pretty awesome. It's a new word. Urban Dictionary, look it up. We've been gawking through a series on the gospel, which if you grew up in church, like that word is like a really familiar word, right? We've been asking the question, what really is the gospel? What does it mean? Not only what does it mean, what are we supposed to do with it? Two weeks ago, I asked us the question, uh, who are we supposed to preach the gospel to? Now, that assumes a couple of things, right? Uh, that assumes that you are actually supposed to preach the gospel. And not just me, but you too. We assume that because, well, flat out, Jesus said we were. <laughs> it was Jesus who said that we're supposed to be people who preach the gospel. Now, I get it. The word preach feels a little, like, cringy, right, for most of us. Most of you look and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's your job, T. That's not my job. Like, you preach. I'm just nice to people. But we were reminded uh, that if we're going to be a people who preach the gospel, it's got to be something that uh, not only shows in the way that we live our lives, but actually also somehow, some way comes out of our mouths. Now, a couple weeks ago, uh, we asked the question, who are we supposed to preach the gospel to? And if you remember, I said, the first person you're supposed to preach the gospel to is yourself. We have to be people who constantly are reminding ourselves of what God has done in our lives. The good news of the kingdom, of life, of the age to come, life and life to the full that Jesus promised to anybody who would believe that in faith we too can be forgiven. We too can become a part of God's family. And man, I'm telling you, like I need to hear that daily. Dane Ortland says we never graduate from the gospel. And man, I'm telling you, I, I know that deep in my bones. I have to tell myself over and over again how amazing it is that God would love a sinner like me, would come in and rescue me. But that's good news that I am not the sum of my failures. Jesus has redeemed me because of his death and resurrection, and that I experience the life of the age to come now and I will for all eternity. Man, I got to preach that to myself. Because when I understand it, when I really grasp how beautiful and powerful and amazing that truth is and how it's transforming my life in spite of my weaknesses, then I can't help but want to then share it with whoever God places in my path. First person I preach to is me and the next person I preach to is whoever God brings into my path. Now, uh, today, what I'd like for us to actually uh, kind of ask the question is uh, not just who am I supposed to preach it to, but how am I supposed to preach it? Uh, Henry Nouwen said that it is the core of Christian spirituality to remember and reach out to the other with good news. If you got good news, you can't help but talk about it with other people, right? You get into college, you can't help but 
tell somebody, look, I got into this. You got a new job, uh, a new hobby, something that you're into, you want to talk about it. I was with some friends a couple of weeks ago, and they had just recently found out that they were pregnant. But it was really early on in the pregnancy, and so they weren't, like, telling anybody yet. They hadn't even told some of their family yet, and, and, but they were so excited that they couldn't stop. They, like, couldn't, they said, I was like, oh, I'll shut up. I won't say nothing, but uh, right, because you can't help talking about good news. So how, though, are we supposed to talk about this good news? Uh, when I was in college, I went to a, a, a small Christian college down in Ohio, Cedarville University. I was a bop. Somebody, woo, woo. It's all right. That's why. <laughs> I was a Bible major because uh, I had a sense that God was calling me to ministry. It's what I love to do. When Jesus had kind of radically uh, transformed my life when I was a, a sophomore, junior in high school, Flint Northern, God just like, I just fell in love with Jesus. And, and what happened, uh, what happens when anybody falls in love with Jesus is you just can't get enough of him. And so you start to fill up. You ever like tried to carry around a cup of water that's like full all the way to the very brim? What happens? Anytime you bump into somebody, you spill, yeah, you spill some water on them, right? I was so full up with Jesus, so excited that I just kept, anytime I bumped into somebody, I'd spill some Jesus on them, all right? And that's really the goal of the Christian life. That is what evangelism looks like. You're just so full of Jesus, the good news, what he's doing. When you bump into somebody, you spill a little bit of Jesus on them. When I'm driving in the car and somebody cuts me off, I tend to spill a little bit of torn on them. And it's not the same thing. It's not a good thing. All right, I'm trying to be more full of Jesus than Torin so that I spill Jesus on people in every situation. Well, when I was at Cedarville, I, my senior year, uh, took a class on evangelism, whole semester long. We had to read books. We had to, like, practice with other kids in the class. And then for our, like, final assignment, our professor made us go in small groups to Wittenberg University. It was about 20 minutes away, and uh, we had to go to the quad area where students would just kind of hang out, and we were supposed to just try to start up spiritual conversations. Not like being all crazy or, uh, you know, Bible thumping or like getting into somebody's, but like just be there, try to start up some conversations and, and see if there's an opportunity to have a spiritual conversation with somebody. All right, so I don't know about you, but I was freaking out. Okay, and I'm like, this is what I'm supposed to do the rest of my life. Okay, I'm like still scared about it. I show up and uh, like trying to figure out how, how is this going to happen. And um, when I get there, though, I, I see, well, first I hear actually, uh, somebody else who's already preaching the gospel. Uh, it looked like this. It wasn't this guy uh, specifically, but it looked like him with a suit full on. It was like 80 degrees and dude was in a suit. And had a Bible, King James, you know what I'm saying? And homeboy was going to town. It was one of the most vulgar gospel presentations that I've ever witnessed. If you can use the word vulgar and homeboy wasn't swearing. All he wanted to tell people is that they were going to hell. And when a girl walked by in a pair of shorts, he would say, I don't know if I can say these words in church, but. S-L-U-T and W-H-O-R-E, that's what he would shout at them. You are a, mm, and you're going to hell, and said similar words to uh, the guys that were there. And instantly, my desire to have a genuine conversation about this Jesus that I was actually in love with, that I wanted to be able to share with somebody else, 
was like almost impossible. I'm not 100% sure, but I think his name was Richard. And what I realized is when you're sharing the gospel, you don't want to be like Richard. Today, I'd like to answer the question, how do you share the gospel? And I want to do that by looking at a story in Scripture because uh, Jesus is our ultimate example. Now, uh, how Jesus shared the gospel may surprise us. Did he stand up in front of crowds and preach? Yes, sometimes he did. But often, Jesus met people in their place of pain with love, and he often did it over a meal. He would meet people in their place of pain with love. Now, there are a lot of pain points in our culture today, glaring pain points in our culture today. Uh, One of them that jumps out to me is the problem of loneliness. Uh, The amount of people who say they have no close friends has quadrupled since 1990, according to the Center on American Life. 54% of Americans report that they sometimes or always feel that no one knows them well. 40% of Americans have zero close friends. That means that basically every other person that you meet at your high school or your middle school or your work or in your neighborhood, when you're shopping or when you're at Starbucks, every other person that you meet feels as though they have zero close friends. Loneliness is an epidemic. Uh, Many of you sitting in here right now probably feel that to some extent. The last couple of years with the pandemic has absolutely exacerbated that reality as we had to socially distance and masking and all of that and made us feel like we were disconnected, disengaged from one another. And loneliness, even as already was a growing problem, just simply multiplied in this season and we felt it. The other uh, pain point that I see so often, especially in the generation that is coming up right now, is many people live without meaning. Yeah, they're living life, but they don't know why they're living life. Uh, Listen to this. The secular life script is great if humans are animals, right? But if we are souls, then survival and pleasure can never be enough. You see, so many folks in our secular society have this understanding of humanity that we're basically animals. And so it's all about trying to, you know, move your life up and to the right. It's about hedonism. It's about more freedom to do whatever I want. It's more money, more this, more that, more materialism, more sex. Fill in the blank. Because we assume if we are animals that life is just simply about survival and pleasure. But if we're souls, as the Bible understands humanity to be, then simply survival and pleasure will never be enough. And everybody experiences it. Whether you experience it when you're younger or when you're older or sometime in the middle, every single person at some point in the life comes to the realization that what I've been chasing after, survival and pleasure, it's not enough. Something's missing. I need more. American suicide rates have increased by 33% in the last two decades alone. Depression in youth is up 63% in just the last few years. All around us, people are in pain. 
And one of the greatest ways that Jesus shared the gospel is by meeting people in their pain with his love. What if preaching the gospel looked a lot less like angry men? What's interesting, I've never seen crazy angry women preachers. I don't know why that is, but always men. Uh, What if preaching the gospel looked a lot less like a sales pitch to win converts and more like love? More like invitations to meet God. More like invitations to the table. More like invitations to a meal in your social spaces. More like the stories of Jesus we see in the Gospels. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Luke chapter 7 this morning. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be at. You can look it up in your paper Bible, on your Bible app, on your phone. Uh, We'll have it up on the screen as well. But Luke chapter 7 is the story. It's a pretty famous story. It's really a pretty powerful story. And what I'd like to do is kind of walk our way down through, and I'll kind of make some comments as we're reading it together. We're going to start in verse 36. It says, When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Jesus gets invited to dinner. Now, Uh, That's a nice thing. We invite people over to dinner in our society. But this was actually a a pretty big deal to be invited to share a table with somebody else. Because at that time in ancient Near East, to share a table had all kinds of social implications. It showed your social status. It showed whether you were an insider or an outsider. Uh, Rich people didn't usually eat with poor people. Poor people didn't eat with rich people and everything in between. The influential ate with the influential. And so this Pharisee has invited Jesus over. We're like, oh, we don't do that today, thankfully. And I'm like, baloney. Rich people eat at rich people restaurants. Every four or five years, I get a gift certificate to a a nice place, and I eat at one of those too. Poor people eat at poor people restaurants, don't they? Middle class have their restaurants. Every once in a while, we might, but if we're being honest, how it was back then is not a whole lot different today. And Jesus gets invited to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were like the... They were like the religious elite. Them cats had it down. They were well respected within the community. They paid great attention to all the laws, make sure that they were following everything. Not all of them, but many of them, why Jesus often had a beef with the Pharisees, were doing the right things, but the heart wasn't really in it. Now this Pharisees invited Jesus over And we're going to learn some things about this interaction, but it's a pretty big deal. Now, it's also interesting to note um, that other people wind up being at the meal, okay? Why is that? I didn't know initially until I did a little bit of study. Here's what I found. Jesus was a public figure. And so for a Pharisee to invite Jesus over as a public figure, they would not shut the doors to the room where the meal was taking place. The doors were purposefully left open so that people could actually hang out just outside the doors or even come into the room if there was space and sit on the edges of the walls so that they could listen in on the conversation that was taking place. Keep reading with me, verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, this is just a, uh, a kind way of saying that she was a prostitute or a sex worker, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. 
So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Uh, An alabaster jar of perfume assumes that this was an expensive jar of perfume. We're not 100% sure who this woman is. There's a lot of debate that's happened for centuries in the church. Is this Mary of Bethany, Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, friends of Jesus? Is this possibly Mary Magdalene, who Jesus cast out uh, um, seven demons with? Is this another Mary altogether? We're really honestly not sure. But whoever this person is, they brought a very expensive bottle of perfume that they're going to use on Jesus in this moment. And we know that by doing that, she must have had some sort of an interaction with Jesus already. We don't know anything about it. We don't know if it was a personal interaction where they, where they actually talked or if maybe she heard him teaching somewhere else and heard the message, and so she's here. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She's doing what is traditionally done for anybody in the ancient Near East when they come to a meal. She's washing Jesus' feet, literally with her tears. She's not afraid to put her hair down because even though that was taboo in the culture and still is in many places in the Middle East, she was already known as a sinner. And so she's not worried about what other people are going to think. She's just worried about washing Jesus' feet. And she's doing so with her tears, wiping his feet with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing his feet with expensive perfume. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, okay, this is his thought in his head. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And I'm sure that's how it sounded in his head. Here's the thing, though. You don't ever want to think mean thoughts when you're having dinner with Jesus, okay? Like, he knows. He knows what you're thinking. Like, come on, man. You should have known better. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Simon, this is the Pharisee's name, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Well, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Basically, 100K and 10K, all right? So, One guy owes the moneylender 100K. Another person owes the moneylender 10K. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, Jesus says in verse 42. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon. So at this point, he's still not even acknowledged what this woman is doing, this beautiful, sacrificial, uh, uh, glorious act that she's doing. And even now in this moment, he turns to the woman, but he continues to address Simon. It's not because he's trying to snub the woman. He's trying to teach Simon something. Look what he says. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet 
my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil in my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You know what he's saying? Simon, you've been snubbing me, bro. She's doing all the things you as the host were supposed to do. When I came into your house as your guest, hospitality says you would wash your guest's feet. He didn't do that. Hospitality says you would anoint their head with oil. He didn't do that. Hospitality says you would kiss them with a greeting. You're like, what? That's a little weird. No, no, no. Go over to Europe. Go to other places in the Middle East. They still do that to this day. It was a sign of hospitality, of welcome. He didn't do that. She's done everything that Simon's supposed to do. Jesus is like, you've been snubbing me since the moment I got here. She's playing the host even more than you are. Look what he goes on to say. He says, therefore, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. In other words, she's been forgiven and she's showing it with great love. She's been forgiven a lot. In fact, she was already called a sinner. She knows the power of the gospel. She knows the power of what it means to be lost and an outsider and to have been brought inside. And that's why she has such great love for Jesus and is expressing it in spite of what everybody else thinks. He says, but whoever has been forgiven, uh, forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is reminding her. But more than that, he's not just saying it to her, even though this is actually the first time that Jesus is now addressing her. He's actually saying it for the sake of everybody else. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Now there's two ways to kind of read that. One is, wow, who is this dude? He's forgiving sins. And another is, who is this dude that thinks he can forgive sins? Which was quite often how Jesus was treated. This is exactly what happened in Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, another time that Jesus is at somebody's house for a meal. And people are like, how dare he? He eats with sinners. Eating with sinner right here. How dare he eat with tax collectors? He does it in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus. Jesus said to the woman, verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Your faith has saved you, go in peace. Jesus says that she has experienced salvation. If you were here last week, you know that we talked about some of these words, the kingdom of God, which is one way to describe the gospel, the good news. Uh, salvation is another way. Uh, eternal life or life of the age to come is another way. All these are different ways of explaining the same thing. The good news that you were once outside of the family of God, but now because of what Christ has done through your faith, you are brought into the family of God. There's so many important events and teachings that actually happen in the gospel of Luke around a dinner table. Here we have one in chapter 7. Parts of chapter 10 and chapter 11 happen around a table. Almost all of chapter 14 and 15 happen around a dinner table. In chapter 19, Zacchaeus, another great teaching and moment, happens around another dinner table. Uh, Jesus is about hospitality. Chapter 22 and 24, Jesus is being hospitable uh, to the disciples at the Last Supper. So much of Luke happens over meals. 
funny, Jesus doesn't have his own house. So he's constantly inviting himself over to yours. <laughs> but even in that place, Jesus is not only the guest, he plays the host. Uh, one theologian said this, <laughs> said Jesus ate his way through the Gospels. <laughs> I like that. In fact, if we actually flip back just before the story that we just read, just three verses, Luke chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus says this. He says, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he's got a demon. In other words, he's not eating or drinking, and you guys think he's crazy. And then look what he says. The son of man, speaking of himself, me, I came eating and drinking. And you say, oh yeah, I'm a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus actually said that one of the ways he came, right, because his life is a life of coming. The way that he presents the gospel is by eating and drinking. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I like this Jesus. I like this Jesus. Uh, there's a couple of thoughts that I've noticed that I wanted to share with you as I was reading through the Gospels. There are times that Jesus would stand up in front of large crowds and teach, preach, share the gospel, the good news. When people come to Jesus, okay, when people would come, like the rich young ruler that we talked about last week, and was like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to get eternal life? All right. When somebody comes with a direct question to him, uh, Jesus often leads with truth. Okay. When people come to Jesus, he often leads with truth. That just simply means he's bolder, not without grace, but straightforward and bold. Okay. When he comes to people, especially those that are on the outside, he often leads with grace. He's gentle. He still says what needs to be said, but he leads with grace. Wherever grace and truth meet, that's where there is love. Where grace kisses truth, love is born. Jesus was said to be full of grace and full of truth. You cannot have one without the other. And when those two things come together, that's where you find love. That's what Jesus is about. The question is, which one are we supposed to lead with? And that's probably one of the most important questions for people who are supposed to preach the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel to the woman of sin. He also preached the gospel to the rich young ruler that we looked at last week. Very different approaches though, right? What are we supposed to lead with? Um, Someone had said once, evangelism is an impulse of the spirit to move out towards others with the good news of Jesus. That's all evangelism is. We hear the word evangelism, we kind of get like a little hivey, like, like that's not like, ugh. But evangelism is just a, an impulse of the spirit to reach out to other people with good news that we've experienced. That's all that it is. Uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, one of my favorite uh, authors, um, he wrote a book called Reaching Out. Uh, listen to what he says. As a reaction to a very aggressive, manipulative, and at times very degrading type of evangelism, we sometimes hesitate to make our convictions known and thereby lose our sense of witness. When we're not talking about what Jesus has done, we are not witnessing just simply telling people what we've seen, heard, or experienced. He says, 
although at times it may seem better to deepen our commitment to Jesus rather than evangelize others, it belongs to the core of Christian spirituality to reach out to the other with good news. Looking at hospitality as the creation of a free and friendly space where we can reach out to strangers and invite them to become friends, it is clear that this can take place on many levels and in many relationships. You see, what Henry is saying is that when we invite people in, offering them hospitality, what we do is we move them from outside to inside. Jesus did this over and over again in the Gospels. It was an invitation into Jesus' personal space. Sometimes it was at a meal. Sometimes it's with an interaction. There's all kinds of different ways that this actually looks. Uh, the word hospitality uh, in the New Testament is the word philoxenia. Pretty cool, huh? Philoxenia is really just two words. Philo, philo, which just means love. And xenos, which means stranger, foreigner. Hospitality is just loving somebody who's a stranger or a foreigner, an outsider. That's all hospitality is. Um, now one says, hospitality, therefore, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. The idea of hospitality is littered all throughout Scripture. Uh, Romans chapter 12. If I was a good preacher, I would have this marked in my Bible already. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says this. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice assumes that it's going to take work and that you're going to have to keep getting at it over and over again, right? That's what practice is. Practice doesn't make perfect. Practice makes permanent. So what we want to do is actually practice hospitality. That's what Romans tells us. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. <laughs> Bookmark that time. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Neat freaks and introverts, y'all need to memorize this passage. Oh, they're going to mess up my house if I bring them over. Ah, get off the lawn. <laughs> Offer hospitality without grumbling. It's a privilege that we have. It's a gospel act. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 says this. Flip over there. Hebrews chapter 13, 1 and 2. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, uh, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You never know who you might be loving. But I can tell you this, you will always be loving Jesus. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, the practice of hospitality is actually a requirement for leadership within the church. You ever heard of somebody getting kicked out of their church because they weren't good at hospitality? No, and hopefully you never will. But it is a requirement. It's an expectation for those who are leaders within the church. Why? Because it's a gospel act. 
its core to what it means to preach the gospel. It's helping outsiders become insiders by sharing our lives and loves with them, inviting them into a table so that they can understand who Jesus is and how he transforms their life. Rosario Butterfield, in her great book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, said this, radically ordinary hospitality, which that's just a great phrase in and of itself, radically ordinary hospitality, Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Ah, I love that phrase. The gospel comes with a house key. Now, it's not just talking about inviting somebody over to enjoy a meal at your house. That's certainly a very important way that we practice hospitality or at your apartment or your dorm room. If you eat in your dorm room, I guess you can do that. The point is that we invite people into our spaces and that the gospel is a key to those spaces. It's an opportunity for them to come in at any time to be with you, to learn from you, to engage with you. So what does it actually look like to do this? Uh, My wife actually taught me this. Uh, Hospitality, okay, is not the same thing as entertaining people. Entertainment is about the host. Hospitality is about the guest. Entertainment is about who the in crowd is. Hospitality is about justice for the poor and the outcast. When we're hospitable, we have opportunities to invite people into our lives in a myriad of different ways. Certainly around the table is a beautiful and powerful one, but there are so many others. All we have to do is simply invite people into our normal, regular, boring, possibly crazy, maybe a little weird life. Whatever you are, wherever you're at, that's what hospitality is about. You invite people into that. So do you eat lunch at the high school cafeteria? If you're in high school, you do. Do you eat lunch at the middle school cafeteria? All right, you can simply invite somebody to come and sit with you. That is a radically ordinary act of hospitality. Do you go to church? Well, invite people to come with you. Do you go out to eat? Invite people to join you. Do you play games at your house or at your apartment? Well, invite people to come and play with you. All you game nerds got really excited about that one. It's awesome. Do you have conversations about the importance of faith in your life? Invite people into those conversations. Do you ever pray and read the Bible? Invite people to pray and read with you. I know some of this stuff sounds a little like, whoa, would I really do that? Look, all it is is you inviting people into the spaces and places that you normally inhabit. That's what hospitality ever looks like. Whatever things you normally do. Um, Let me simply close with this. Friends, we have to be intentional with our invitations intentional with our invitation. So uh, this is what I'm going to, uh, this is what I'm going to ask us to do this summer, okay? We're closing out our gospel series. We've spent a lot of time talking about what is the gospel. It's the story of God from start to finish, the good news of God's rescue of humanity through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the entire Bible. It's all good news. It's all gospel. We've not only talked about what the gospel is, but what we're supposed to do with the gospel. Preach it, share it, offer it, invite people into it. So I want to give you uh, 
one thing as a small challenge this summer. I simply want you to do this. Identify three things that you could do this summer to practice hospitality as a gospel act. Practice three things you could do this summer. So I can't take um, any credit for this. This is all uh, my wife's doing. Uh, but I guess since I was smart enough to marry her, I get a little bit of credit. So she, uh, a couple weeks ago, was like, hey, uh, this summer, let's take one night every week, and we're just going to um, grill some hot dogs and hamburgers, super simple, paper plates, paper cups, ketchup and mustard, nothing fancy, and let's just invite some people to come and have dinner with us. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. It's a great great idea. And so when school's out, that's what we're going to do. What three things could you do this summer? Doesn't have to be amazing. Doesn't have to be lavish. We're talking like hot dogs from Meyer, baby, right? Some GFS frozen hamburgers, okay? Uh, we're talking about that big bottle of Heinz. That is one thing we'll splurge for. I always tell Brenda, honey, we're rich enough to afford the Heinz now, okay? <laughs> and afford the Heinz. What could you do this summer, what three ways could you practice hospitality as a gospel act? Look, not everybody who ate with Jesus became a disciple, okay? Not everybody who eats with you will become one either. But you never know who's in your life that's just waiting for an invitation to be seen. That's just waiting for an invitation to be known. Invitations change lives. I promise you. 